0: The world is fascinated by what is happening at the end of this week. Maybe you've been in a hole somewhere, but imagine that most of you know that something either exciting or maybe you consider it to be dreadful. I'm not sure what you consider it to be, but something is happening this Friday. Something that the whole world is going to be watching. Something that will cost, it's an estimated 175 to $200 million. Dollars. And if you don't know about it, that's okay, really, but just want you to know that that money is going to come somewhat from your pocket. Some of it, a large portion of it, will come from taxpayer dollars. The world is going to be fascinated this Friday as they look to see a really unprecedented event, but we're not going to get into that. An event that is the inauguration of the President of the United States of America, an event that over the past few years, every four years, takes place, and it's been getting bigger and bigger, until the last one, when President Obama was elected, I believe it was over a million people who were there, and of course, Donald Trump wants to beat that, hopefully, he's hoping that there'll be more than that there Washington, D.C. is going to be flooded with hundreds of thousands of people coming at this moment where power is being transferred over to a new president. The world is going to be watching. There's going to be all this secret service out in force, the police out in force. It's a big moment as the world watches and sees the transfer of power take place. So it's no wonder the story that we read last week that there was so much going on in Jerusalem on the day when Jesus rode in on that donkey and he had that colt with him. Because in Jeremiah 9, in verse 9, it says, rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. The king of glory is coming in. He's riding lowly and humble on a donkey. It was the inauguration moment for Jesus coming in. And as, as he came into Jerusalem, they were singing his praises. They were laying their coats out, they were waving palm branches, they were putting branches down on the road, making it a red carpet ceremony to the best of their ability. They were welcoming Jesus as their king. But last week we noticed that what Jesus did when he took on that place, that role as king, was drastic. It was unexpected and it wasn't like. Because Jesus walked into that temple, and he saw what was going on, and he saw that people were distracted from true worship, that they were distracted from prayer in that house of prayer. And he began to do something that seemed so uncharacteristic of Jesus. He walked over to the money changers' tables, and he began to flip them over, and coins began going everywhere. He walked over to the pens that had the animals in them, and he began to let the Animals go free. Jesus took over the temple on that day. He asserted his authority as king and he took his place as king in the temple. And the people didn't like it. And Jesus knew that they weren't going to like it. Can you imagine what it would be like on Friday if Donald Trump gets up and at that moment when the inauguration is about to take place, there's crowds there cheering, they're so excited. If he began to weep, if he began to cry, and he looked out at those crowds and said, "Oh Washington, D.C., oh, United States of America, if only you knew the things that made for peace. Go with me to Luke chapter 19. It's a strange act of Jesus. In fact, this whole episode in Jesus' life is something drastic that was really made to grasp the attention of all of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, the same record is there of how the disciples go and they get the donkey, they get the colt, they bring it. The people begin to rejoice and to praise him in verse 38, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're acknowledging finally that Jesus is king. You can imagine what's welling up inside of the disciples as they say, finally, people recognize that Jesus is the Christ. He is the king. This moment that they had been looking for their entire lives. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him, from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus said, This is such an important moment that all of creation recognizes it. Even these rocks would begin to cry out and to worship me as the king if the crowds weren't recognizing it. So in the midst of this joyful moment, in the midst of the crowds, in the midst of this rejoicing in Jesus coming as the king, Suddenly, there's a strange moment. Verse 41, now as he drew near the city, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your what? Visitation. Imagine how the crowds feel. Here they are worshiping Jesus. They're praising Jesus. They're doing their best to treat him like the king that he is. And suddenly he begins to cry, to weep. Imagine the shoulders of Jesus just shaking as he looks down on Jerusalem and he sees that beautiful temple glistening in the sun. He begins to cry, saying, if only you knew the things that made for your peace. Oh, in my life, I wonder how often Jesus has wept over me, and said, oh, if only Zach knew, if only he knew the things that, that are made for his peace, if, if only he recognized the time of his visitation, if only he could have that peace that passes understanding that I'm longing to give to him today. Because so often in my life, I've been anxious, I've been upset I've been disturbed. I've not allowed the peace of Christ to fill me to the fullness. So as Jesus goes down into Jerusalem, He knew what His actions were going to result in. He knew that as He disrupted all of their formalism, all of the distractions that were keeping them from making that house a house of prayer, as He disrupted everything in the way of true communion with the Father, of true prayer, he knew what the result would be. If you look later on in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, right after he says, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It doesn't record here how the children came in and the lame and the blind came in, that that region of peace that was established in the temple like we saw last week. And we read how... In entering into communion with God, we enter into the region of peace. That part isn't recorded in Luke's gospel. Instead, it records this in verse 47. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple. So every day, Jesus would come to the temple and he would begin to teach the people. It says that he would come later on early each morning. And then each evening, he would go back to the Mount of Olives, and he would spend the night in prayer. And then he would come back, and he would teach the people. Day by day, he was there teaching the people. He wanted for them to continue to accept him as king. He wanted it really to be established as a house of prayer. But he knew what this was going to result in. The verse continues, But the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. They can't stand Jesus. Jesus has turned over their tables. He's let all of their business go to waste. He's taken away their profit that they were gleaning off of the top of God's work. And they want Him done away with. They don't want God's house to be a house of prayer. Sometimes in my life, when God disrupts things and He's directing me to a more earnest time of prayer, I find myself a little resentful. I find myself wondering why things are going wrong in my life or wondering why this is happening. And really, I believe that God is just wanting to lead me to pray more earnestly. If only I would recognize the time of my visitation, only trust Him that He's using these things to lead me to a deeper place of prayer. You know the story. That week, challenge after challenge, comes from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the Sadducees. They, they all try to trip Jesus up. They all try to get Him to stumble so that they can have something that will lead them to accuse Him because the people are supporting Jesus. But time after time, they fail. He cleansed the temple on Monday morning, and day after day until Thursday... They try to entrap him and to ensnare him. Then comes the day of the Passover when the Passover was celebrated that evening. He gets his disciples together. And it's on that evening that Judas determines, look, this isn't working out. Jesus isn't setting himself up like the king I want him to be. So I'm going to help the Pharisees in this the, the Sadducees out. I'm going to help the priests out. And he goes and he betrays Jesus and he leads them to get Jesus. You see, they wanted to put Jesus to death because he was so passionate that his house would be called the house of prayer. From the very beginning in John chapter 2, when Jesus first came to Jerusalem at the first Passover, he came and he cleansed the temple. He had that whip out and he cleansed it and he said, my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And his disciples, as they saw what Jesus did, they were reminded of how it said in the Old Testament, zeal for his, for his house shall consume him. Jesus had a passion for the temple to be a place where people could come and connect with the Father. He was passionate that that original goal of the sanctuary be fulfilled there in Jerusalem, that it might be a place where He could dwell among them. So it looked like this failed. It looked like Jesus wasn't able to set up the house of prayer that He wanted to set up. The disciples felt like Jesus had failed them miserably. That's why they forsook Him. That's why they ran away from Him on the night that He agreed to be taken captive. But thankfully, Sunday came. Resurrection morning came, and Jesus rose from the grave. We pick up the story later on in Luke as Jesus begins to appear to his disciples and he begins to explain to them all the things from the Old Testament that explain what his purpose was, why he had actually come and why he actually did need to suffer and to die for their sins. For 40 days, Jesus appears to the disciples. He continues to reveal things to them, to teach them the end of Luke chapter 24, we find that final moment in Jesus' time here on earth. Verse 46, then he said to them, <clears throat> thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. It says, this message is to go to the whole world of forgiveness, of remission of sins, That I am a Savior who came to save His people from their sins. That's to go to the whole world. But not just the whole world. It's to begin at Jerusalem. That city that had rejected Him. That city that had turned their back on the King. He said, this is the place where it's to start. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued, until you are clothed with power from on high. It says, I'm about to send the promise of the Father on you, but first I need you to disrupt your life. I need you to take time aside. I need you to tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued, until you are clothed with power from on high. Then in verse 38 it continues, <clears throat> verse 50, sorry, and he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. He's there on the Mount of Olives. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that, while, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Can you imagine the Pharisees and scribes? Can you imagine the people in Jerusalem as the disciples come walking back from the Mount of Olives? They expect that this is a defeated group. Jesus wasn't crowned king like they had hoped. And so they expect them to be crying. They expect for them to be downtrodden, to be depressed. But instead, as they come back into Jerusalem, They're rejoicing. They're filled with great joy. And they go into the temple, and they're continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The disciples were passionate about the same thing that Jesus was passionate about, and that is connecting with the Father through prayer. And so continually, they were in the temple, praising God and worshiping God. Go with me to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24 gives us a picture of what takes place as Jesus ascends into heaven. You imagine as in Acts chapter 1 it tells us how Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples, it says that they were gazing up into heaven and they just kept watching. It's like when you let a, I imagine like when you let a helium balloon go. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller off in the distance. And you're just trying to, 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 to watch it until you get that final glimpse of it. They're just watching that space where Jesus had gone to, hoping that they might see just one more glimpse of Jesus. And the angels, they show up to him and they say, Why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who ascended into heaven, he's coming back in the same way that he ascended to heaven. But as Jesus ascended into heaven, in John, he had told Mary Magdalene, he said, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. He told the disciples earlier in John chapter 14, I'm going to my Father's house. In my Father's house are many mansions. So even though Jesus had said, this temple... My Father's house shall be called the house of prayer. Just like with Moses, who saw the sanctuary as a pattern of something in heaven, Jesus too said that I'm going to my Father's house. I'm going to that heavenly tabernacle, to that heavenly sanctuary. So as he ascends up to heaven, as he ascends to that heavenly city, I believe Psalm chapter 24 gives us a picture of what takes place. I can only imagine how amazing that scene was. I hope that we can see recordings of it when we get to heaven. But as he arrives to heaven, can you imagine all of the angels? They've been separated from Jesus. They've been watching in anguish, wondering how Jesus is going to work out this plan of salvation. They've been watching Jesus born as a baby. They've watched as their king, their beloved leader, was mistreated and suffered and died on a cross. So as He comes back, as He's welcomed to the city, I believe that this is what takes place in Psalm chapter 24. First of all, in verse 3, it says, "...who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol." nor sworn deceitfully. How many of you could say you have pure hands and a clean heart? You've never sworn deceitfully. Good, I didn't see any hands. The only person that this could possibly describe is Jesus. This is describing Jesus, the only one who has ever had a pure heart and clean hands for his entire life. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Verse 7, this is what I believe took place as Jesus came to that heavenly city. The angels, I believe that were accompanying Him, say, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Imagine what that's like. They're there and they're saying, here comes the King of glory. But then there's this answering phrase because the angels inside the city, they want to hear more about it. They just can't get enough of hearing about Jesus as their king. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the answer comes back. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. And lift up your everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And one more time from inside the city, it says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Then Jesus enters into that heavenly kingdom that we can only imagine what it's like there. And as he entered in there, we don't know what takes place, but we know That Jesus serves as both our king and our high priest. So I imagine that one of the first things he did was to go to the Father, to take and to bring his blood, just like the high priest going in to the presence of God always came with the blood of a sacrifice. As he came in, he wanted to see is this sacrifice sufficient? Did this redeem my people? Is this acceptable? And for the next 10 days, I believe that the biggest celebration took place in heaven. The biggest inauguration that would put this Friday to shame. A celebration that probably costs more than we can imagine in our money to to throw. As Jesus is placed on the throne. It's no wonder that the disciples... Returned with rejoicing to the city of Jerusalem. It's no wonder that they went into the temple and they were constantly praising God. They were constantly in prayer. It's no wonder that they were looking forward with confident expectation to that promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out on them, of being endued, clothed with power from on high. Because their best friend, the one in whose footsteps they'd followed for three and a half years, the one who quieted the storms in their life the one who had raised their dead loved ones from the grave the one who had healed the lepers who had laid his hands on the blind and they had seen the one who comforted them when they were distressed the one who had told them my joy i give to you i want my joy to be in you i want you to have fullness of joy that same best friend They had watched Him physically rise up in the sky, and they knew that He was going into heaven. He was going to His Father's house. He was going to prepare a place for them, and that He was coming back for them. And then He had said simply this, tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued, you are clothed with power from on high. So in Acts chapter 1, we find the disciples there in Jerusalem spending time in earnest prayer for this to take place. And I don't think it was a prayer of hoping that somehow their prayers might make it God's will to pour out the Holy Spirit. They knew that the Holy Spirit was to be poured out. What they were praying for was a transformation of their heart, a transformation of their will, their lives, to the place where God could pour out His Holy Spirit on them. They were all together in one place in Acts chapter 1. It tells us in verse 12 that then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, and the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord, in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were willing for their lives to be disrupted. Not everyone who was there when Jesus ascended into heaven was there in the upper room. I think we've talked about this before in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says that there were 500 who watched as Jesus ascended into heaven. But how many were there in the upper room? 120. 120 expectant souls. 120 who could pray like they'd never prayed before because they knew that Jesus had ascended into heaven. Can you imagine how it would transform your prayers? Think about your best friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a a best friend, a colleague, somebody that you are really close to. Imagine that person ascending to the most powerful position in all the world. Imagine how easy it would be to call him up and to say, hey, I've got a problem, a situation over here. I think that you need to do this. If you were Donald Trump's best friend, you would probably have a lot of privileges over the next four years. But I imagine that I'm not going to ever be able to talk to Donald Trump in person let alone probably even to the governor of California or my local senator or I met the mayor of Atascadero once but I don't think I could call him up on the phone and ask him for anything but here they knew Jesus they knew Jesus passion that his father's house be called the house of prayer they knew that he wanted them to ask and he'd promised that my father is more willing to give you the holy spirit than a father to give gifts to his children. And so they're there in expectation. They're there in hope. They're there talking to their best friend. They're there approaching the, the God of the universe in the name of Jesus. Can you imagine how real that was to them? I long for my prayer life to be like that. I believe that If I could recognize what Jesus is to me, how close and personal of a friend He is to me, that it would radically transform the way I pray. That it would give me a radical faith as I prayed. A a complete expectation that God will fulfill His will in my life. But for ten days, they disrupted their lives. They allowed the tables of their lives to be turned over. Simon Peter didn't go back to his fishing. The other disciples didn't go back to tax collecting. They didn't go back to their business. Instead, they took time continually in prayer. And when they started out on this, do you think that they knew that they were going to pray for 10 days? There's definitely no indication that they knew that it was just 10 days that they were praying for. All they knew was that Jesus had said, tarry in Jerusalem until the promise comes. And so they set themselves to pray continually together. And they were there with rejoicing, praising God, continually focused on who Jesus was. What an amazing 10 days that was. I imagine it was filled with joy and I imagine it was also filled with tears as they thought about how they had turned their back on Jesus time and time again. They thought about how they had misinterpreted what Jesus meant to do. Imagine it was filled with repentance. I imagine that that they laid aside all that stuff that they had always been talking about about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True humility. True confession. True repentance. True earnest prayer. In the book First Selected Messages it says that those are keys to revival. I believe that that is what was, was taking place in the upper room. And revival came with power. And it came ten days later which is really interesting because Ten days later was the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after Passover. Now if you were to look in Exodus chapter 19 verse 1, it it describes how the Israelites, after having left Egypt, that in the third month, they came to Mount Sinai. And if you analyze the, the dates there and you look at the months, you'll come up with the fact that What took place at Mount Sinai took place about 50 days after Passover. It's a fascinating thing because if you think about what took place on Mount Sinai, it was really God coming down to establish a people. He was coming down to set up His law, His kingdom, His government here on earth. And He came and He wrote with His own finger in the Ten Commandments. It's interesting that in Luke... Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to the finger of God. He wrote with His own finger the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. So every year, they were to celebrate this feast 50 days after Passover. And on this feast, they would take in two loaves of bread along with a lamb that had been sacrificed. And they would put the, the lamb part of it that was On top of the bread and they would wave it before the most holy place. It was a day for the law to be recognized. It was a day for the offerings to be recognized. For the first fruits to be recognized. You remember that Jesus took with him those who had been resurrected. Matthew tells us that when he died they were resurrected and then they ascended with him to heaven. So I don't know what all was taking place in heaven but I know from those Old Testament examples in the sanctuary that the king was being seated on his throne. So I don't know what all takes place in a heavenly inauguration, but we get little pictures of what a coronation, an anointing took place when somebody was put into the office of king or high priest. Look at Psalm chapter 133. Psalm chapter 133 talks about how Aaron was anointed as high priest. It begins by talking about how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then in verse 12, verse 2, it says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments, it is like the dew of Mount Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And there's this picture of Aaron being anointed as high priest and that oil being poured out on him and it's flowing down off of him. And it flows down his garments and it drips down, as the way it describes it, down onto Mount Zion. So I don't know exactly what took place on the day of Pentecost. But as the disciples prayed and searched their hearts, they made room for their own hearts to become a house of prayer. Jesus was being anointed as King of the universe on the throne in the heavenly kingdom. And I like to imagine that Zechariah chapter 4 compares the Holy Spirit To oil flowing down in golden pipes. And it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. I like to imagine that that golden oil flowed down off of Jesus as he was anointed as king of the universe. And it flowed down through heaven. And on its way, it caught fire. And it came down and it descended on 120 watching, waiting, expectant disciples longing to be filled with Jesus themselves. The Holy Spirit anointed them on that day. They were filled with Jesus and they became houses of prayer themselves. They became sanctuaries for the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus did for us. I love what it says in the book, Acts of the Apostles, page 38. It says, Christ's ascension to heaven was a signal to His followers that they were to receive the promised blessing. For this they were to wait before they entered upon their work. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, He was enthroned amidst the adoration of angels. As soon as the ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents. And Christ was indeed glorified, even with the glory which He had with the Father from all eternity. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to His promise, He had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to His followers as a token of what? That He had as priest and king received all authority in heaven and on earth and was the anointed one over His people. And this is really what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 as he preaches to the those thousands who are gathered there, who are amazed by what's taken place as the Holy Spirit's been poured out, and they're speaking in different tongues, in different languages. As, as Peter looks at this, he, he tells the people, why are you amazed by this? He goes on to, to share the prophecies of Joel chapter, chapter two, 2, and then after that he goes in verse 22 to say this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rejoice, will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made me to know the ways of life, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that. Christ was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. Jesus, in the presence of God, was anointed with the fullness of joy that comes from being in God's presence, and he poured it out on his disciples. Verse 29, Men and brother, and let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Peter says Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne of the universe. You rejected him as king here in the temple, but Jesus is currently sitting on the throne Of the universe. And that's why you see us speaking in other tongues. That's why you see us so joyful. That's why the Holy Spirit has been poured out. Because He is exalted. He is the King of kings. And He has poured out this blessing on us. Friends, it wasn't just for them. Peter goes on to say, And the promise is to you. And to your children. And to as many as the Lord shall call. So in my life, when I recognize that I am lacking peace, when I'm lacking joy, when I'm lacking love, when I'm not experiencing that region of peace that comes from being in the house of prayer, I have to say, is it because I don't recognize that Jesus is on the throne? What is it that keeps Him from filling my heart with that same gift that He gave to the disciples? Because he's promised to do that. In Ephesians chapter 4, he promised that this is exactly his purpose in ascending into heaven. Ephesians chapter 4, he said that he ascended in order to pour out gifts on you and me. We pick it up in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You remember that in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. We come to that throne expecting grace. And here it says, the grace is according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Jesus ascended into heaven, not just so that he could be with the Father, but so that he could pour out rich gifts on you. If you jump down to verse 11, he describes those gifts. It says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is his goal in pouring out gifts on you as his church. He wants to raise you up as ministers, as workers for him. So that you can take the gospel to the world. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. Christ. Friends, we have a king. He's seated on the throne and all authority has been given to him. In Matthew 28, as he was ascending into heaven, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In all of those illimitable realms of space, the trillions and trillions of stars out there, the galaxies without number out there, worlds without end. Jesus is king of it all. And He also has authority on this planet and in your life. And He wants to give you the gifts that you need to accomplish His work in your life. He doesn't want you to strive in your own strength, but He wants you to strive to connect with Him and to allow His Holy Spirit to fill you and to use you. In the book, Testimonies to Ministers, it describes that power that has been given And it tells us that this is the message that the whole world is desperately needing to hear. Page 91, it says, All power is given into His hands that He may dispense rich gifts unto men. I don't know if they do that at presidential inaugurations. But Jesus, when He went to the throne, His goal was to pour out gifts on you and me. Imparting the priceless gift of His own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his spirit in a large measure. Friends, God is longing to pour out his spirit in a large measure. He's longing for this house to be a house of prayer. He's longing for your home to be a house of prayer. He's longing for your heart to be a house of prayer. Are you at peace with God today? Are you filled with the fullness of joy? Do you have unselfish love for people around you? If any of these things are lacking, go to the throne of grace and plead with the King of Kings that He would give you the gift that He's already longing to give you. He tells us to ask and to keep asking, to keep praying, to be earnest about praying, not so that we can somehow convince Him. He's done all of this because He wants to give you all of these gifts. You know, think of my own father. Thankfully, I was blessed with a good father. And if you weren't blessed with the best of dads, sometimes it can be hard to look at God as a loving father. But He is a loving father. But I look at my own dad. He's really busy. He works in administration. He has a lot of people looking up to him. But it's amazing. When either Leah or I have any kind of problem, we'll send him a text message. We'll say, when you have time, would you mind doing this? Would you look at this email? When you get a chance, we don't want to bother you. Most times, he drops absolutely everything in order to help us at that moment. He'll call us and he'll talk to us. He'll do whatever it takes. He'll he'll try to talk to this person, to that person, to get me this phone number, to do that. Whatever resources I need, He just wants to help me. And it's the same way with your Father in heaven. He wants to do whatever it takes to fill you with the fullness of Himself. So when we pray, when we're earnest in prayer, when we come together for 10 days of prayer, it's not so that we can work a change in God. But it's because our hearts aren't ready for Him to sit on the throne of our heart. Each of our hearts has to be submitted to Him. If we want the King to reign in our hearts, we have the choice. We can either be like the Pharisees and choose to reject Christ, or we can open our hearts and submit to His will and to His way and allow Him to reign on the throne of our hearts. When we are fully submitted to this, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on us in a greater way than it was on the day of Pentecost. Because we have a great high priest who is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and he ever lives to make intercession for you, and he's able to save you to the uttermost. Oh, friend, will you make your heart a house of prayer? Will you determine not to let any distractions get in the way of your heart being a place of prayer, a place where you're constantly pleading for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Will you join me in praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit like we've never prayed before during these 10 days of prayer? I believe that we aren't willing to pray sometimes like the disciples were because we're just used to the way things are. But the disciples had caught a glimpse of who Jesus was and they weren't Willing to rest satisfied until they had truly been endued with power from on high. And the more that I see Jesus, the more that I'm dissatisfied with the current state of affairs. The more that I'm dissatisfied with a form of godliness that denies the power. Jesus wants to fill us with his fullness. Let's not let him be unable to do that because we reject him. In closing, I'd just like to give you the opportunity to pray for each other, to pray that God would pour out His Holy Spirit. Turn to somebody next to you or to two people next to you and just take a minute to plead that God would pour out His Holy Spirit, that He would disrupt the tables if necessary in our lives so that we can make our hearts a place of prayer. And also pray that God would bless during these 10 days of prayer, that He would open up our schedules so that we can be here, and that God would do something mighty, something miraculous in these 10 days, that we would see His Spirit poured out like never before. Friends, we need revival, and Jesus wants to give it. Let's pray together for a few minutes. Father, we want for Jesus to be inaugurated as King of Kings this week. While the world is focused on something so meaningless in comparison to that, we long that you would sit on the throne of our heart, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would be submitted to your will and to your way, to your law, and that you would live out your life within us. Father, I pray that you bless these 10 days of prayer that we're in. Lord, give us a willingness to... Take the time out in order to worship together, to focus on Jesus, and to pray. Lord, give us faith that it will make a difference, that you will answer. Lord, make us be a part of that 120 who were there together in one place, who you were able to pour out your Spirit on with power. Lord, we know that this is going to take place again in an even greater way. And we pray that it might take place during these 10 days. Father, thank you so much for making this place a house of prayer, for making our homes houses of prayer, for making our hearts a house of prayer. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.